Hi there, this is Watchin, and you are now listening to the I Choose the Ladder podcast, a podcast for black women on the corporate climb. In today's episode, you meet Terry Sterling. Currently, Terry is the chief nurse of Endorse and serves as principal and CEO of her own healthcare management services firm. She was recently appointed by Governor John Bell Edwards as co-chair of the Resilient Louisiana Commission, along with Don Pearson, Secretary of Louisiana Economic Development. Ms. Sterling was the former Chief Operating Officer of Our Lady of the Lake Regional Medical Center, where she was responsible for overseeing the day-to-day operations of the largest hospital in Louisiana with more than 800 beds. Under Ms. Sterling's leadership, OLOLRMC was was recognized among the best in the nation by U.S. News and World Report in its 2017 and 18 Best Hospitals Rankings. OLOLRMC achieved Magnet Designation Awarded for Excellence in Nursing Services by the American Nurses Credential Center's Magnet Recognition Program and earned Hospital of the Year honors five times under Ms. Sterling's leadership. Immediately prior to her retirement in January of 2020, Ms. Sterling served as the Executive Vice President for Strategic Initiatives at OLOLRMC, where she led the development of the Freestanding Children's Hospital. Ms. Sterling has served on the core leadership team of the Louisiana Action Coalition for the Future of Nursing campaign for action since its inception in 2011. She plays a pivotal role with the Nurse Leader Institute and the Nurse Mentorship Program. Ms. Sterling recently presented the role of the public-private partnership in transforming healthcare in Louisiana at the Future of Nursing 2030 workshop in Philadelphia. Ms. Sterling serves on the board of the Louisiana Organization of Nurse Leaders. She previously served on the board of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, New Orleans branch. She has also been involved with the Capital Area United Way, Alzheimer's Services of the Capital Area, Capital Area American Heart Association, and the Louisiana Workforce Investment Board. Ms. Sterling has been a member of the Rotary Club of Baton Rouge since 2006, was inducted in the Louisiana Nurses Foundation Hall of Fame in 2016, received the Louisiana State University Women's Center eSpirit de Femme Award in 2014, and is a past recipient of the Influential Women in Business Award from the Baton Rouge Business Report. As you will hear in our conversation, Terry is um, a champion for women in the healthcare field, but also um, has thought very deeply about what it means to shape a career um, over a span of decades. Um, she worked for the same organization for a really long time, but had um, opportunities to reinvent herself multiple times within that organization. Um, she also really highlighted for me the the importance of forward thinking, right? She planned her sabbatical 10 years in advance, right? And so as you listen to her, um, as you listen to our conversation, I hope that you will take pieces of it that you can apply to your career wherever you are right now and understanding that your career is a journey, it's not a sprint, um, and that there are ways to keep growing and continuing to to learn regardless of where you are in your in your current journey. So as always, grab your I Choose the Ladder notebook, your favorite pen, and your favorite beverage, and get ready to get to work. This episode is brought to you by The Review Planner. For many of us, performance review season is about to begin. 
for many of us, it's also a challenge to remember all of the things that we've done during the year. So what happens is our performance reviews become a one-way conversation where our managers are telling us what they think we did during the year and without proof of our performance, it becomes incredibly hard for us to advocate for that raise, promotion, or new position that we know we deserve. So I created the review planner because I always wanted a tool like this, a systematic way to track all of our career accomplishments that are specifically tied to the feedback and growth areas that our managers are measuring our success by. The review planner helps you create a schedule for your career growth, and it makes it easy to focus on the goals that you have throughout the year. With email templates, monthly checklists, built-in accountability and reminders, the planner keeps you on track to accomplish your goals and ensures you are spending your time on the things that actually move your career forward. I designed the review planner to help you focus on your career and prepare for your annual review so you can confidently speak up for yourself and earn what you deserve. To learn more about the review planner, head to thereviewplanner.com. Again, that's thereviewplanner.com. Terry, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I know the request was very random and came out of nowhere. So I'm really, really excited that you were open to having this conversation. Oh, thank you, Watch. And it's a privilege to be here, certainly as in the pandemic, um, all things are unusual. And so um, I've just learned to go with the flow. And uh, when opportunities come my way, just to try to make a difference where I can. So it's certainly a privilege to join you today. So Terry, we're going to talk about your really big job and the work that you do, especially during a global pandemic. But I'm thinking back, how did corporate America or the concept of corporate get introduced to your life? Was it something that you always knew existed that you would be a part of eventually or, or how did it enter your life? Well, you know, being a nurse by foundational training, it's not something that I can say that I thought about uh, when I chose nursing as a career, but very interesting early on in my career, I remember coming home from work and my dad asking um, about six months in, what did I think about nursing? And one of the things I talked to him about is there wasn't this sense of controlling our own destiny and how we made decisions and even how the nurses on the unit could take ownership of the things that we could. Um, that kind of parlayed down the line to an opportunity to go back to business school. Mm. Um, and so I became a nurse manager and then had the opportunity to be sponsored by my organization to get my MBA. And that's really where I fell in love with the idea of corporate leadership, you know, studying everybody, you know, from Jack Welsh and others um, who ran, you know, the GEs of the world and, and that corporate culture. Um, that's really where, where I fell in love with uh, corporate leadership and then began to think about, you know, one day wanting to be in a senior level role in, you know, a large organization. So you just mentioned that your, uh, your company actually sponsored you to go back to school. And we talk about, you know, sponsorship a ton, right? We hear coming through the ranks about mentorship a lot. We don't necessarily talk about sponsorship and what it takes and what it means to have a company sponsor you. So looking back at that time, like why do you think they were open to sponsoring you to pursue something that could have potentially taken you away from them? Um, if they had been thinking, right, you get your MBA and then you go somewhere else. But what do you think it was maybe about your performance or about just like your role within the organization that made them open to that sponsorship? 
Well, you know, you talk about the important role of mentors. It was really a unique opportunity. Our chief nursing officer at the time was, um, her husband was the dean of the School of Business at LSU. Mm. And so they were starting a new executive program and they were looking for partnering with corporate entities to identify up and coming leaders to invest in, to sponsor. And so it was really a unique opportunity. I tell people all the time, sometimes a little luck happens along the way um, that opens a door. And I had become an, an assistant director, was working uh, with quality and with some of the regulatory pieces. And because of that work and closely working with her on some projects, um, she suggested that I potentially be the candidate. I had a little luck on the other side as well. Um, our CEO happened to serve on jury duty with my dad. Uh, and so, um, you know, I went from being kind of a nameless, faceless person to, you know, you should find my daughter. You know, certainly, um, you know, my late father was one of my biggest cheerleaders. So I had a little luck on both sides mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, she suggested and he's like, oh yeah, I met her dad on jury duty. And so uh, those things kind of really came together to make that very unique opportunity. And both of them actually were great mentors and great advocates for me my entire career. Mm -hmm. So let's think about the educational piece for a little bit, because it is a huge investment, right? Whether it's whether you get it sponsored and your company's paying for it or not, the time investment, right? As you are, you know, figuring out all the other parts of life. So for you looking back now, what maybe are some of the benefits of having gone back and maybe some of the challenges that you didn't necessarily see would come? Um, I know I get questions a lot from women in the community around, is it worth it to go back and get an MBA? Are you actually using the things? And so as you think about the value that your MBA provided or didn't provide, um, how, how has it been, how has it materialized in your, in your profession? In the world of business, I will say that I do not believe that many of the opportunities that I was afforded would have occurred had I not gone to business school. Um, nursing is one of the largest cost centers in healthcare in hospitals. Mm -hmm. and learning to understand how you control the cost, how you manage that cost. And so while I was in school, then working on my MBA, I was afforded the opportunity to lead the Office of Budget and Finance mm -hmm. for the Division of Nursing. And that afforded me the opportunity to be in front of the C-suite in support of my executive at the time, annually producing our budget, discussing any budget variants, discussing any plans we had. And so for me, it really was my entree into the C-suite for them to, again, for me to be visible and a part of solving problems. And I think that's one of the things that's really important when individuals think about, is an NBA worth it? It's not necessarily all of what it's worth to your company. It's about what it deepens in your understanding of the business environment that you're going to have to work in. And so I would tell anyone who's considering it, um, that it's certainly worth it. Um, now, I will say, <clears throat> excuse me, that there is a cost, you know, I was a mom, a wife, and, you know, all of those roles that we play. Um, and so as I made different decisions about school and commitments, it's decisions that my husband and I made together. Mm. Um, I didn't take a job. I didn't go to school. I didn't do anything without he and I sitting together and having a conversation about what it meant to our family. What it meant to our time commitment. Um, I will also say, you know, when your children are younger, I went back to graduate school twice. Once when my daughter was um, 
between two and five. And then once when she was in high school um, and it was much harder when she was in high school. And I thought it was actually going to be easier, but I could trust her with my husband or with my mother or with my mother-in-law when she was a baby and know that she was loved, fed and well taken care of. Um, when she was older and I missed a basketball game, it was a big deal. And so um, there are those pieces that you have to, you know, think about when you're choosing to, you know, pursue your education. Uh, but I think it's about really having a good partner with you and really working with your family to understand how do you, if you don't have a village, how do you build a village? How do you pay for a village when you need it? Uh, but I think it's really, really important. No one can take away from you what you learn yourself and the skills and the things that you develop, you will carry them with you forever. And so I just believe in lifelong learning. Um, and you talked about while you were in school, you took on a new high profile role within your organization. Um, I think that a lot of times there is fear around that because when you are maybe one of the few black people or maybe you're the only black woman, your mistakes in high profile roles, like they are highly visible to everyone. And so there's a bit of fear around um, maybe rocking the boat too much so that you are not like, there's not a target on your back. But for you, how did you think about making mistakes? And even now as a, as a very senior leader, the epitome of a senior leader, how do you think about making um, mistakes in your lifelong learning? Because life, learning comes with mistakes because you don't know. And so how do you, how do you think about um, learning? I'm sorry, about mistakes. And then for someone who may be, um, feeling like they don't want to pursue something because they just don't want the added pressure, but it probably is good for their career. How should they be thinking about it? Well, I'll take the, the latter first is I think don't say no to yourself. Hmm. You know, I, when individuals reach out to me about, I had a young woman um, reach out to me. She was considering uh, going to one of the top 10 um, business schools in healthcare. And she didn't feel the time was right. And there was all of these reasons she was giving me and, you know, that someone had handed her me to, to talk through. And I said, so you're going to say no to yourself before you allow them to even look at your resume. Mm. We do that all the time, though. Yes. And so it's really not saying I, I'm not going to say no to myself. You know, the other thing I used to tell my, my female executives when, you know, in, in my role, I used to always tell them, okay, I'm taking off my Terry boss hat and I'm putting on my Terry female coach mentor hat. And, and um, when talking to them about whether it's getting a certification or joining up, you know, you know, applying to being a part of something. And I said, you're not gonna glow in the dark. Nobody's gonna know if you don't get in. Mm -hmm. You know, I said, but when you say no to yourself, then you're not giving yourself that opportunity. And, you know, you know, self-esteem is, kind of, I like to think of it's kind of like porridge. You know, if you have a little too much, it's arrogance. And if you don't have enough, you have missed opportunities. You just, it's, it's the esteem of yourself to really focus on accomplishing what you are and to know, even if you do make a mistake, you can pick yourself up, you can move in the right direction and you can recover from that. Mm -hmm. um, we sometimes think that they're fatal errors. There are very few fatal errors. Um, and most people can tell stories about, you know, something that, you know, oh my God, you know, they screwed up or, um, and you learn from those things. It's, it's how you learn. So um, I, I just remind young people, uh, just pick yourself back up, but push yourself forward, 
we're in a unique situation. You know, Vice President Harris made the comment about she's going to be the first but not the last. We have to think that way. When we are opening a door for someone or when we push through a door, we get to bring somebody with us. But if we never get in that room, we can't bring others along. Mm-hmm. So oh, I have two lines of questions, but so I'm going to go with the first one because of something that you said before, um, but we'll come back to what you just said about opening doors. Um, so you said about self-esteem, right? It's the esteem of yourself. It's the, um, it's understanding, you know, the value that you bring. But if you look at the data, regardless of how successful or accomplished we are, there are a lot of black women who suffer from imposter syndrome, right? So you have the degrees, you have the work experience, you have the projects, you have all these things and you still get in the room. And for whatever reason, like you feel like you don't belong. And so one, have you ever struggled with imposter syndrome? And then two, are there any tangible things that you've done maybe to be able to push through when you are in those moments? So I think we all suffer from it, like you say, as women um, of imposter syndrome of, you know, am I good enough? Or are they going to find me out this time? You know, all the things that they tell us. I mean, I can remember when I was admitted to business school and it was not something, again, that I planned to do. And I was in an executive program, which was lovely. They mailed my books. They, you know, all the things you didn't have to go to the bookstore. But when the box of books arrived, I'm like, okay, they're going to find me out now. Um, But we all have that sense of, you know, am I good enough? And a couple of things I tell people, um, bring someone along on the journey. Hmm. And bring someone along on the journey who can help you. You know, oftentimes people bring along a friend who hasn't had that experience or can't provide some guidance. Find someone who is in a like situation, who's been there before, you all can go along so that when you are feeling that way, you can pick up the phone to say, you know, I'm really struggling with, or can you connect me with someone who might help? Mm -hmm. Um, That to me is the most important thing. Even today, uh, one of my colleagues, actually my colleague who connected me to you, um, you know, she's a successful entrepreneur. I came from the corporate business side and our gifts are different. So we agreed that, you know, we're just going to have lunch or calls um, and mentor each other because our talents are different. You know, I will call her and say, I need an hour of your time, you know, and we schedule it (laughs) and here are the things I want to talk about. And so Bringing someone along on the journey, um, I think, is really important. And the other thing is find your Kevlar, you know, find what makes you feel strong and powerful. Mm. You know, and so, you know, if you're walking in a room and you potentially don't think it's going to be a friendly room, at least know, okay, I've got my Kevlar on. I, I feel good about myself. I've prepared myself. Who do I know is in the room? Who might be a friend? Who might be an ally? What are the kinds of questions I might get? You know, really prepare yourself so that you feel strong because feeling good and feeling strong and feeling confident will help to push you over that. And the last thing I will tell individuals when you're really in new situations is practice and prepare. You know, I probably over prepare for any talk I give, you know, I'm in the mirror, you know, I make my husband listen, you know, and those pieces um, because I find for me, when I'm over-prepared, I'm very comfortable. Mm, mm, mm-hmm. 
that I don't, you know, I'm going to make a misstep or I'm not going to get this right or I'm not going to remember, remember this really important line. And so the more I prepare, my anxiety level comes down. Yeah, 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 agreed. Um, and then something you mentioned um, before, and I don't think we talk about this side of it enough. So you, you talk about if you are in the room, opening the doors for other people and bringing um, other people with you, right? But there's also pressures on the person who's opening the door that the other people may not see, right? So as a leader, um, if you're the first of something to be in the room, there are different challenges that you're working through while also trying to look out for the next generation. So maybe what are some pressures that we may not know that senior women are dealing with in leadership? And then how can we, as the, the generation who's being pulled up, what can we do to help those leaders, right? Because I think a lot of times the conversation is like, oh, she has a seat at the table. How does she help the next generation? But how does the next generation, um, one, help you, but make ourselves easier to help? Right. I think one thing that's really important when we're trying to bring along um, women and people of color in roles is everyone is not gonna you know, be successful. When you sponsor a candidate, you have their resume, you, you may know them, you may know their parents, or you may have met them through you know, any you know, number of ways. And you say, I think this is a person that is good for a particular role, but you can't die on the sword if that person doesn't work out. Mm. And you can't give up and not sponsor the next person. Um, and so um, I think we have a sense of, you know, every time somebody gets up to bat, they, you know, they are going to hit a home run. No, that's not the case. Um, and so we really just have to be okay with we're going to sponsor or support or advocate for the best candidate. And we're going to continue to support them and give them, give them what they need. But, you know, there are cases where uh, they're just not going to be uh, successful. You know, I also think it's important particularly around young people, um, that we put them in situations where they can grow into opportunities. Um, we have a role in healthcare where we bring on administrative fellows and those individuals spend a year alongside the C-suite. Um, that is an invaluable year. Um, that they get a, they get to go to board meetings, they get to go to all of these front row um, seats at the table. Um, and so when they go on in their careers, then when that next door opens, they peeped in there before. Mm -hmm. And so I think for our young people, fellowships and internships and all of those things are really great opportunities that we need our women and minority students to really think about um, you know, and even to think about this is an investment. Oftentimes it's, you know, what, what am I going to get from that year that I'm not out there earning, you know, double what I could as an intern. It's like, it's going to be an invaluable year that's going to pay off exponentially uh, when you do get an opportunity to move up. So then what's our responsibility to the people who sponsor us, right? So let's say for you, for example, what did you think your, and it's a little bit different because you were still working and all those things, but what is your responsibility to the person who speaks your name and doors of opportunities where you may not be present, right? I think that, yes, I understand um, the role that you all, the senior leaders play, right, for us and not giving up on people just because everybody doesn't bat 100 when they're there. But for the people who are being brought in, like, what is our responsibility? I think your singular responsibility is to always do your best. Mm -hmm. 
you know, if I know that a person has given 110% and they have worked hard, then that's all I expect. You know, when I'm working with young professionals, um, you know, when they come in to meet with me, I'm giving them meaningful projects. I'm giving them stretch projects. And I said, you know, don't spend a thousand hours on something and you think you're going down the wrong path. If you get down the path and you question, stop and ask the question. You know, on our side, I think it's, you know, we have a responsibility to be approachable and to be a good mentor and partner, but I need you to come back to me when you need direction or when you need guidance. But if you give me your best, then I'm going to also mentor you and give you our best. You know, I had a young woman who was one of my fellows and she was just dreadfully afraid of public speaking. And I told her, I said, you're not going to get out of this internship without doing a, a presentation at the board meeting. Mm-hmm. I said, so we're going to start with small things in meetings and we're going to work our way up to that. But I would not have been been a good mentor to her and it wouldn't have been a good experience if we didn't get her to the point of comfort Um, as a young professional with those things. And so I certainly am a big believer in strength finders. You should work on what you do well and refine those and get better. But at the same time, there are certain competencies that you have to have. And those internships and those opportunities really give us an opportunity to say, this is a competency. You can't be successful in this industry if you don't master. And so let's work on that. But I need you to give me your best. I need you to show up and give me your best. Mm, yeah yeah that, that and I think that's the part that we take for granted right it's not like you have to show up and be perfect you need to show up and do your best consistently doing your best right. um so on the topic of mentors and sponsors so we know that um typically at least this is what the data says that people tend to mentor and sponsor people who look like them um 90 of the people who listen to this podcast are black women and we know that there are not um as many black women in um in C-suite level positions or senior level positions as other people. And so the the idea of how do we um, position ourselves to be seen, especially now, like when people are not in the office, right? Before, at least you could see people in the hallways or you could, you know, with nursing, you're in the hallways at work, but in a regular non-nursing job, you can go to your boss's office, you can do all those things. So as they're thinking about how they can be seen, how they can provide value in this time, what would you recommend? Well, I think um, when we talk about showing up, that's important. You know, I notice when I'm on Zoom calls, um, just whether or not people have their camera on or not. You know, do you get up in the morning for your business calls? And if you're home-based, you know, are you, you know, I'm not going to turn my camera on or I'm not going to, you know, turn your camera on you know, be present. It doesn't matter where you are um, and what environment you're in, just, you know, be present um, as it relates to that. You still have opportunities to volunteer for projects and for work effort when you're on calls. We're looking for someone who wants to do X. You know, for example, yes, I am, you know, accustomed to being in a very corporate role. I now run my own company, but, you know, I'm working now to get my CPR certified so I can go and give Uh, COVID vaccine shots. I can do that. I can make a difference. You know, so you can find things to say, you know, I want to make a difference. I want to help. There's just always an opportunity when you're out there working and volunteering or working in the organization or, you know, picking up an extra, you know, task force or something that the organization is focused on that you can say, 
I can help, I can do that. Um, and I think that's where, you know, one of my early mentors, when I was a young manager, um, our organization was sponsored by religious women, sisters. And so one of the sisters was putting together a task force for something. And uh, I, my boss came in and said, look, we're going to put you on this task force. And I'm like, you know, I'm really busy. I've got a lot going on in my union. She's like, you don't say no to a sister. <laughs> And I'm like, okay. And she went and 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 Sister Linda got rest her soul. She went on to be one of my biggest sponsors. She was one of you know the individuals that you know along the way, you know, opened many doors for me. But I had a mentor who told me, you don't say no to that. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think oftentimes in our workforce, sometimes we're really uncomfortable calling our young people to greatness. Mm because, you know, it's uncomfortable or they feel like, you know, you're being too hard, you know, and so, you know, I grew up in that, you know, somebody called me to greatness. And so, you know, when I'm in a meeting with, you know, in the past with some of my past fellows and young individuals, you know, I'll tell them, you know, send them a text, call me after the meeting, you know, and one of them said, look, you know, you weren't prepared. You didn't know your business. Mm, mm. Um, and I said, you, you know, the questions you were asking, those questions should have been researched prior to you coming on this call. Mm. Um, and, you know, somebody has to be the person who cares about you enough to tell you that. Mm. Yeah, because I think that <laughs> the narrative around mentorship is like just like a, lo- a big love fest, right? <laughs> I think so when you have a mentor who doesn't allow you to, um, to remain stagnant and who calls you to greatness, it can be alarming sometimes because that's not the messaging that you're getting that your mentor should be, right? It's not, it's the person who like picks you up when you're down and the person who gives you opportunities. It's not the person that says, hey, you just blew an opportunity because you weren't prepared. So it, yeah. I think it's a, it's a, it's something that I hope more people talk about in terms of like what an actual mentor who is invested in your success looks like and what that relationship looks like. And it is calling you to greatness in ways that is, that can be uncomfortable for both parties involved, but in the long term, it's, it's what's best for, for the growth of that mentee. So you mentioned that you, um, well, for y'all who don't know, Terry was in a, at, with a company for almost 22 years um, and she had different positions within that company, was actually in the C-suite um, of that company. And then you decided to do something different. So for you, how do you know when it's time to move on? I think that we stay in jobs, a lot of us, right? We stay in jobs for a a really long time for a variety of reasons. Um, And so if somebody is somewhere right now and they're questioning, like, is it time for me to leave? Is it time for me to try a different position? Like, how do you know when when you're ready to move on? Um, It starts with being very attuned to understanding kind of how do you see your life in um, your career trajectory? I always frame it in what I call, um, there's this big goal out there that I want to ultimately land here. Um, And so if you, sometimes individuals get lost in trying to get to that big goal, I always tell individuals to then divide it into what, where are you going to be in five years in order for you to get that, to that goal? If it's a long-term goal, mm-hmm. if you think about where you want to be in five years, then think about the midpoint at about two and a half and three years, what does that look like? And then that informs what should I be doing this year? 
Mm-hmm. Then that informs what I should be doing today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so um, as I thought about my life in those, you know, increments and, you know, what my, you know, long-term goal in getting there and achieving it, um, then my husband and I began to think about how kind of the second phase of our life would look like. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting, we set... Um, 2020, we both had, you know, he had gone to work early um, and, you know, and so I, being a nurse, you know, I came out in my early twenties and then went back to graduate school while I was working. So that's why my, my tenure was so long. Um, we had always picked that 2020 might be a great year for a gap year. Mm. And so we don't think about gap years. You know, we think about that when kids are, you know, graduating from college. So, you know, it looks like about 2020, our daughter would be, you know, out of college uh, and it would be a good year. And then potentially I would then kind of reinvent myself into the things that I was doing. When was that conversation had? Like how long in advance before 2020 were you guys having that conversation? A decade ago. Man, to have (laughs) that level of foresight, what? A decade ago. Wow. And so we then, you know, and so, you know, but I'm I'm fairly disciplined, you know, like every year in January, I do, you know, the state of our financial union, where are we, you know, where are we with what we own, what we owe, you know, those can just being really clear about, you know, what point in our life did we want to be debt free in those pieces. So like I said, that whole one, three, five, I was kind of carried with me um, for a while. But when we made that decision that 2020 would would be potentially a gap year. Um, and then there was this really nice opportunity that kind of segue to, we were building a children's hospital and had some projects going on. And so I went to my boss and, you know, I said, you know, I think, you know, potentially, you know, we need to begin to think about a path of kind of how do we unravel? What's the succession plan for me in those pieces? And so it was really an orderly transition. I moved, you know, we started to think about my successor that person was selected. I mentored them for six months, um, you know, running a, a, you know, a more than billion dollar organization, that mentorship and that important, I was available to that individual. And then I took on strategic initiatives in those pieces and really to have that children's hospital as my capstone project. Um, I always tell people, you want to leave jobs on a high. You want to leave where people are like, oh my God, I can't believe you're leaving. That's when you want to leave. Um, and then move on to what you feel is next for you. Um, and so now it's interesting that it, be, you know, the pandemic year became- I was like, you took a gap year during a pandemic <laughs> where you couldn't go anywhere, you couldn't do anything. You literally, you, the world shut down. The world shut down. You're absolutely right. Um, we were fortunate though. We had, dis- we, um, my best friend from nursing school, our two families, uh, we were syncing calendars, had gone to Africa the prior year. So in the spring of 19, 2019, um, we took a big trip. And so that has sustained us, uh, <laughs> you know, through this year, but, but it was an interesting year. And so for me, um, you know, it was, you know, there's the blessing, you know, of being safe and, and not, you know, but then there was a little bit of survivor guilt of, you know, I can imagine what it's not you know, like for my team that I worked with and how challenging it was. And so um, then the phone rang um, and I got asked by the governor 
to chair the resilient co-chair the resilient Louisiana Commission and to be a part of you know really addressing how Louisiana returns uh, back after the pandemic and and how do we you know so that really became um, kind of a work of passion for me over the last um, you know seven or eight months and. Uh, to really continue, you know, to try to support the state and to make a difference there. So uh, it's been an interesting gap year. Um, so you talked a little bit about um, thinking about how you could reinvent yourself, right? Um, at what point should people be thinking about reinventing themselves in their careers, right? Is it a, you need X title, you need X amount of work experience, or is it something that's um, more of a personal decision? Well, I mean, I think it can be any of those, to be quite honest. You know, you can just, you know, I, I know individuals who've decided that, you know, they wanted to leave the corporate world. I've always wanted to have my own business or, you know, they kind of started a side hustle on the side and the side hustle begins to grow and it's a little more fun and, you know, they're having enough income and so they're able to put more time into that and that really is their passion more than, you know, what their work is. Or it may be like in this situation that it's, you know, in my case, it's, I always thought that there would be a 2.0, um, uh, that I would leave, you know, my, my corporate job and then I would, you know, afford myself the opportunity to do different things. You know, I am, I'm a coach and team oriented person by nature. Um, you know, there's some individuals who are naturally, I call them golfers, they want to play the course, they like to be singular in what they accomplish, but I'm a big team-based person. And so helping others and coaching others and those pieces was something that I kind of always thought that's something I might do. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, it just kind of, whatever you dream of doing, when you write it down and, and it begins to become a reality, and you begin to work through it. I think that's the most important thing. There's no perfect way. I mean, when you read, you know, a big advocate of suggesting to people to read success stories of others, you know, that's where you you learn and understand the success of those individuals. But there's no perfect way. It's finding your way. Mm -hmm. And then um, you mentioned that. Well, I mentioned that you transitioned. Um, you take a gap year. Um, what are some skills, if any, you think? are going to, that you've acquired from being in corporate for so long that will help you in your transition into entrepreneurship? Are there skills looking back now that you're like, man, I'm glad I learned how to do that uh, while working? Uh, it's the discipline of it. I mean, I, I can tell you it's the financial discipline. It's all the things, you know, I am so timeline driven. I will tell you, you know, my colleague who is my, my uh, mentor coach tells me that I, it's perfection. You know, she's the one who tells me, just get the website up. It's not perfect. You can fix it. Done is better than perfect. That's a, that's, so that's what I hear that a lot of people from corporate struggle with on the other side, just because the, the metrics of success and the ways in which you're being evaluated are so different on the different sides of the house that it's like, no, I got to get it done because I don't want anything to be wrong. Like I want, I have the project timeline. I got the milestones that I'm checking <laughs> off and people are like, girl, just put up the tweet and move <laughs> on. Right. Like it's, it's one of those things. Um, and in terms of, you know, building a team and all of that, how do you think about that in your own practice currently in your own company? You know, it, I think it's, a, I've always believed that a significant part of leadership is being a talent scout. Mm. 
What does that mean? And about finding talent to bring a part of your team to accomplish whatever your organization is, finding the best person with the talent and then giving them what they need to do and like let them go on to and do great things. Yeah. You know, and really tapping individuals that, you know, when I looked at projects that I was giving to my executives, when I looked at their skill set and their passion, this is something that Susie would be good at, or this is something that Christy is excellent. Um, and so I've always believed in um, being a talent scout. Um, when you have a, a skill mismatch, when you give somebody something that they're really not skilled to do, they're miserable and you usually don't get a good product. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that's really in, you know, now when, you know, in this gig economy, I, most of what I buy, I buy contractually for some, I need a subject matter expert to do these individual pieces. And, you know, I tell my colleagues who are still in the traditional workforce, I said, this gig economy is awesome because there's so many young, great entrepreneurs out there who you can buy whatever fraction of their time that you need. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're exceptional. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, it's you know just about being competency based, you know, when you're picking individuals and to make sure, you know, you know, I'm I'm working on, you know, doing some things differently with my website and those pieces. So it's like, you know, here's my PowerPoint that says what I want you to do. <laughs> and so let's talk about what that would look like for you, or can you give me a sample? You know, but it's about being really talent driven. Yeah. Um, and um, I mentioned that you were at a company for a really long time, and that is not the norm anymore, right? It's not, um, I think they say my generation, we stay at a company for two to three years, and then we're like, what's next? What's next? Um, yeah. And sometimes when you don't know what's next and you feel stuck, it can cause a lot of like mental, I think, like anguish. And so for you, can you think about a time maybe where you felt stuck? And what did you do to get unstuck? Or if you've never felt stuck in a position, why do you think that is? Well, there was a period of time where I felt like I was in purgatory, like I was in a role and I really couldn't figure out what was next. So I really didn't feel stuck. I just felt like just a little bit like I was in a little bit of jello, you know, just like, okay, am I supposed to be here? Kind of what's next for me? Um, and, you know, I can recall one morning driving to work and it kind of the thought came to me is, you know, let's think through what you want next, Hmm. you know, and let's really be clear about now at this mid-career point, and it was before I became a vice president. I I was a senior director, but I had not become an executive yet. Um, And I really became focused on um, reading and thinking and really thoughtful about, you know, what did I want to do next? And at that point, I decided, you know, my dream job, I was going to be a corporate chief nurse. Um, and so about six months into that discernment period, um, I was promoted to vice president in my company. Mm, mm. Um, but it helped me with clarity around uh, what did I want next? And even when I, you know, when I pondered at other junctures, was staying in my company the right thing or when, you know, you get these lovely profiles from these headhunters of these great jobs. Um, and after my husband and I, we, we lost our last parent within the same 12 months. So we both, we could just, we could live anywhere. You know, our daughter was um, 
an adult. And so I went to my boss and said, look, I'm not coming to you to tell you that I'm leaving. I'm coming to you because I don't want to decide that I'm going to take a new job. And you didn't even think that I was looking. Mm -hmm. I said, you know, I'm in a situation with my, you know, we have, you know, our siblings are here, but they're stable. Their, their lives are fine. Our daughter's living her life and I can really live anywhere and work anywhere um, that I want. And so just having that conversation is liberating. Um, and, you know, I chose to stay until the appropriate transition time, but it's about really kind of thinking through and, you know, being stuck. Is my dog making you crazy? It's okay. Your dog is not making me crazy. <laughs> I was actually just listening to what you were saying. So thinking through what the, um, oh, I think like the, the phrase that you use that I find so beautiful is like the discernment period. I don't think that we allow ourselves the quiet space to strategic plan for our careers. Like we're used to strategic planning for companies and for work, but that discernment period where you are actually not just in motion, but you are thinking through how the motion connects to the goals that you're trying to accomplish and getting some clarity around the goals and asking if you don't have clarity, tapping into the network that you talked about to help people, to have people ask you the types of questions that can help you get that clarity is so important, but I don't know if it's something that we've been taught that we could actually have the opportunity to take. It seems like such a luxury to say, you know, I had a six month discernment period, um, but it makes such a difference. I think it's important for all of us to have a sense of, you know, we talked about self-esteem, but a sense of, of self and self-determination. And, you know, I'm a big advocate. I'm a, I'm a huge reader. And one of the things that I did early on, because I did have a, I had a very, I had a very diverse career in a one big billion dollar company. Mm -hmm. And I did lots of different things. And um, one of the things that I knew was a shortcoming was that I was in a one company. Mm -hmm. And so I spent a lot of time reading about successful companies. I spent a lot of time um, you know, I subscribed to the Harvard Business Review. I, you know, went to meetings. And even sometimes when it wasn't my company sponsoring, I sponsored myself mm -hmm. uh, because I felt like I needed to make certain that I had a sense of the worldview of leadership, the worldview of organizations, understanding solutions. Uh, and with that, I also had a sliver where I always read things and dedicated to personal growth and personal development. Um, you know, one of the most profound things I did early on, you know, uh, Stephen Covey's The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, when you get about two thirds in, you write your personal mission statement. Mm -hmm. um, and then I've revisited that at, you know, maybe 10 year intervals uh, to say, you know, and actually I've challenged myself to do that this year again, is to read it again and, and say, you know, you know, is this really still my personal mission statement? Mm -hmm. So I think putting your sense of self so that there is always discernment. Um, sometimes you have five minutes to discern a very important decision. Sometimes you have hours or sometimes you have days when you have, you know, when I've been faced with really difficult uh, decisions, um, and you're gathering facts and you're gathering information, but it is a sense of discernment about what is true and what is right and what, and just really having a sense of, of inner self about that. I think it's just so important to the foundation of um, good leadership. And I think it's like a muscle, right? The more you practice that habit, 
um, when you're doing it with a 30 minute decision, the better you become at being able to make the five minute decisions, right? But if the first time that you're trying to work that muscle is when everything is on the line, it kind of, it might cause a bit of like paralysis because you've never had to handle that, that kind of, that level of thinking as it pertains to like your, yourself or your decision-making abilities. And so practicing it over time, I think will help you get better at being able to do it when it's like, when the stakes are a little bit higher and you'll feel, I think a little bit more comfortable with the mistakes thing, because you know that it's a muscle that you are, you can lean back on history and say, well, I know that 90% of the time when I do X, Y, and Z process mentally, I'm correct. And so I think that also brings some of the anxiety down. Um, yeah. So one of the, the last question before we go to our lightning round, um, you talked about being a wife, you talked about being a mom, you talked about work, you talked about all those things. Um, how do you make sure that Terry, the human, right? Like the, the whole person who had dreams and hopes before she became all of those things and had all those titles doesn't get lost or didn't get lost in what was a very, very full career? Uh, first, I think very spiritual. You know, I grew up in a spiritual family. You know, my grandmother, um, you know, we would have church at home when she was with us, even if there was a church. Um, so that it's been interesting now with, um, I can go to church all around the world now on any day of the week with um, YouTube and those pieces. So that spiritually has been great. But, uh, you know, my spiritual foundation, um, is important. Um, my husband has been a partner. Um, you know, I think choosing your partner wisely is really important. Um, hey, what does that mean? Everybody says that. And then there's like no more information <laughs> So for the single girls. Like what? Cause this is something that I talked to so my parents have been together since high school. They are now in their sixties. They like each other a whole lot. Which I'm <laughs> like, this is very strange. Um, but the things that I don't think the things that we think is what what's going to matter in 10 years, 15, 20 years of partnership. Like there, how do we know that now at like in your thirties when you're like, oh, well, he's cute and he has a great job, right? Like, cause that's what we're, 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 we're led to think about. So what, in your opinion, are the things that make someone a good partner? You know, I will tell you, you can Google the list. There's a list of the 40 questions, 100 questions. There's, there's, a, there's a great, there's great list out there to say, here are the 40 things you need to talk about. Here's the 100 things you need to talk about. I think the the underlying pieces, people marry some the representative, and they don't marry the person. That's a problem, Terry. <laughs> that is terrible. That is terrible. Because then you wake up and then you're like, wait, who is this person? That's right. Because everybody has a representative. Everybody has a representative mm -hmm. and you have to spend enough time with individuals that you get to meet the person, mm -hmm. you know, and then watching them with, you know, I, you know, watching them with their family, with their, you know, with their sisters, with their mother, you know, I mean, and like having those questions, I'll never forget my nephew was, was seriously dating and I sent him the questions. He's like, T, what do you mean? I said, no, if, if this is the person that you want to spend your life with, sit and have these conversations mm. about your hopes, your dreams, your aspirations, your money, your finances, you know, and those, I said, you need to ask those questions. Mm. Um, you know, their debt, you know, 
that's going to be your, you know, if you're going to, you know, money problems are some of the biggest problems that, you know, destroy relationships. So you need to know if, if, if either one of you have, you know, student loans or you have credit card debt and those pieces. So it's just knowing the person and not meeting and falling in love with the representative. Um, How long does it take to meet the person? I think it depends on how authentic the person is. I will tell you, you know, people don't believe who people show them that they are. Oh, that part. <laughs> you might have just hurt some feelings out there <laughs> right now, but it's true because you want to, because you don't want to feel like you're judging people. You want to see people's potential. That's what they tell us to do. And so you hope that love will be enough to get them to where you see them potentially being, right? Or is that no? No one has invented personality dialysis. You cannot fix a person. Mm. Now, I can choose to change and to grow individually, but my partner can't do that. Mm. Mm. That's a word. You know, and so I just, and I live, you know, I believe who people show me they are the first time. Mm. You know, and I believe, you know, and everybody doesn't deserve a seat in the front row of my life. Some people are, you know, in, you know, the middle row, some people are in the balcony, and some people don't get into the theater. No, that's right. But then how do you deal with the, because I think a lot of times people are afraid of boundaries because you don't want to be perceived a certain way, right? Especially as a Black woman, like, oh, she's so difficult. Oh, she's this. Oh, she's that. Like, how do you how do you, how are you okay with saying you don't get in the theater? I'm okay with saying you don't get in the theater. Mm. It just, you know, it for my own safety and for my own self and for my own peace of mind, you know, I have a place that I created called, I call it the Garden of Ignore. It's a lovely place. <laughs> um, it's a garden. It has lovely flowers and those pieces. And when a person demonstrates to me that they're not truthful or uh, they're mean spirited or whatever, and you have to do it several times, you just can't, you know, it's not one and done. Um, but I mentally put people there um, and it's a place of enjoyment for them, uh, but it takes them out of um, kind of my thought process. It doesn't mean that I may still not have to interact with you, but I know that you live in that garden and I know how I deal with it, 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 like I said, it builds a muscle of this is a person who has demonstrated that they are not a good character. Mm. And this is how I operate and deal with people who demonstrate that they're not a good character. Mm. And that's just that. And that's just that. Mm. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's go to the lightning round. Don't think too much about this is the first thing that comes to mind. Um, so what's one piece of career advice you wish you had gotten earlier in your career? Uh, relationships matter. What's the career lesson that took you the longest to learn, but has had the biggest impact on your career? Preparation is critically important. Hmm. What's a book that you could read over and over again? Um, Colin Powell, it worked for me. Mm -hmm. um, if Forbes was going to do an article on your career at the end of this year, what would the title of that article be? 
finding your passion at any age. And then lastly, we know that decisions about your career are going to be made when you are not in the room. So what do you hope people are saying about you when you are not in the room? That I always gave my best. And on that note, thank you so much, Terry. This was awesome. I have so many gems that I'm going to create that garden of ignore. And I'm going to make, because typically I'm tempted to make my garden of ignore be raggedy. Like you show that you don't have a good character. So you're about to get the raggediest garden with no flowers, no green grass, nothing but concrete. But if that's not right, I'm going to put them in a lovely spa like, so I won't have a garden. I'm going to have the spa of ignore yeah. with nice music. And then when they show that they are not trustworthy, I pick them up and I put them in my spot and just move on with my life. Yeah. And don't get them out. Oh, oh, that that's a good point to notice. Once they're in there, don't take them out. Leave them in there because when they show you who they are the first time, you have to believe them. Yeah. It's like the story of a snake, the snake that says, pick me up. And the person picks them up and the snakes bites them. And he says, well, you knew I was a snake. Mm. Ooh, well... So then whose fault is it that you got bitten? Yeah. Dang, Terry, I was not ready for that. <laughs> I was not ready. But oh, this has been so great. If people want to find you, where can they find you? Uh, TerrySterling.com. Perfect, perfect. Man, I was blown away by that conversation. I think the, the thing that stuck with me the most, and I'll get to my top three, I know I do my list, um, was having that, thought to plan a sabbatical a decade in advance. I think as a society, we are wired for instant rewards and and like instant gratification. So to have the foresight to say 10 years from now, I want to be able to take a professional sabbatical, like who thinks like that? Well, I'm going to start thinking like that in the next decade of what it is that I want to materialize in my life. But you all know that I like to end every episode with my top three things that I got from the the, in the conversation. And so the first thing is about having a period of discernment. I think we have been um, wired or socialized to feel like we always have to be in motion or that we always need to be producing and having periods where you're sitting and thinking and trying to discern and listen for what feels right for the next move is so important. So I'm going to try to institute some periods of discernment um, as I make decisions about what I'm doing with I choose a ladder in the next, you know, three, five years, but um, definitely periods of discernment I had never thought about. Um, The second thing is having a personal mission statement. Um, We talk about this in the five-day career challenge. If you have not done one, um, make sure you sign up for the newsletter so you know when the next one is happening. But having a personal mission statement um, that you use to guide you as you make decisions about your career and how important that is. Um, And then the last thing is how you build a diverse career while working for the same billion dollar business, right? So she had, she spent, I think, 20 years um, in the same company, but had a variety of roles and a variety of leadership roles and was able to grow and still feel like she um, had a very full career. And so as we think about our generation, you know, the millennials who tend to move around a ton, it's around um, the kind of person that you have to be in order to have the discipline enough to reinvent yourself multiple times and not get bored and not get complacent in the same organization and thinking about that for me when I, mean, I choose a ladder standpoint if this is a a company that i'm going to grow for decades right i'm going to have to be able to reinvent what it looks like for me in my role within the organization and so it was really um 
it was very helpful to see how she thought about reinventing herself. Um, as always, if you want to keep the conversation going, you can find us on LinkedIn at I Choose the Ladder or on Instagram at I Choose the Ladder or Facebook at I Choose the Ladder. Um, and if you want to know about the things that are happening with the company and as we release new podcast episodes and events, um, you can do that by subscribing to our newsletter by texting CLIMB, C-L-I-M-B, to 66866. Again, that's CLIMB, C-L-I-M-B, to 66866. And until next time, thank you for listening.